The scripture reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic Church. We're glad that you could join us today. If you haven't been with us for a while, we're in a 12-week Sunday uh, sermon series in the first half of the Gospel of Luke. And we've entitled the series Upside Down Life because we believe that if you have an encounter with Jesus, your life will turn upside down and right side up. Uh, today, we're in the ninth chapter of Luke, and we're looking at that passage of the transfiguration. And man, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange kind of thing that's happening here. Uh, the transfiguration, and uh, you might be wondering what kind of relevance does the transfiguration, this really phenomenal kind of miraculous happening, have to do with us today, and how can it apply to our lives? Well, I think actually going right into the context of the passage will help us to figure out why this passage is so important, because the sections leading up to this passage uh, are these, uh, Peter and the disciples have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus asks Peter, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And so they are definitely on a spiritual peak at this moment. But in the very next moment leading into the transfiguration, Jesus is going to turn and say, well, uh, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. And he is going to be rejected and he's going to be killed and be raised on the third day. And so the disciples go from being on a spiritual peak to definitely being at a spiritual valley. At very best, the disciples are in a state of confusion. I thought you were the king. I thought you were the Messiah. And now all of a sudden, you're going to die. You're going to be rejected. What is going on? So at very best, they're in a state of confusion. But at very worst, they're in a state of absolute devastation. This is their master, this is their teacher, and he is just forecasting that he is going to die. Well, because of this kind of up and down kind of roller coaster ride that the disciples are on, Jesus knows that they're in need of great encouragement. And that's true for us today. We need encouragement. Uh, this life of faith is difficult. Uh, we have our swings. We have our spiritual peaks and we have our spiritual valleys. And so what is the encouragement that we can get from this passage today? Well, in short, it's a glimpse of glory. It's a glimpse of glory. It's seeing the glory of God, even for a moment, even for a glimpse. And that will be enough to propel the disciples and us 
into the days ahead with much confidence and with much love for our Savior. So what is the transfiguration all about, and what does it show? Well, it shows at least three things. It shows the person of glory, the preview of glory, and the plan of glory. We have the person, the preview, and the plan of glory. Let's get into this, the person of glory. When we read Jesus going up to the mountain to pray with his disciples, there's an undeniable parallel that Luke is trying to draw to our attention. Because in Exodus 24 and 34, Moses goes up to a mountain to pray, and he actually enters into a cloud that is descended on the mountain, and it kind of symbolizes the presence of God. And Moses enters into that cloud for 40 days, and he's communing with God directly. And this passage is not unlike that passage. Jesus goes up to a mountain, and he's going to pray to commune with his God. But if there was one chief difference, it's this. And this is what Luke is trying to show between these two parallel leaders and their experiences on the mountain. And it has to do with the glory light, or the light of glory. It has to do with light. See, if you'll recall in Exodus 24 and 34, uh, Moses goes up to a mountain to commune with God, like we said. But when he comes down, his face is glowing because he was talking with God face-to-face, really, um, in the glory cloud. Uh, We're told that the skin of his face was shown, and they were afraid to come near him. And his face was reflecting the glorious light of God so much that actually he had to put a veil over his face to just uh, be bearable in the presence of other people. So he wore a veil. And this was a reflected glory. But notice here in the passage of the Transfiguration, When Jesus is on the mountain, we're told that his face was altered, that he himself was altered, which is what transfiguration means. It it means to turn to another form, and his clothing became dazzling white. Uh, Not a flat white, but a blazing hot white. In Matthew's account of the transfiguration, his face was shown like the sun, meaning that lights were beaming out of Jesus Uh, linearly like flashes of lightning. Mark says his clothes became radiant, which means it glittered, meaning that the light was reflecting off the facets of maybe like a diamond. He was glittering. He was flashing light. He was beaming it. It wasn't light that was reflecting off of Jesus so much as Jesus becoming the light itself. So the difference here is this. Whereas Moses reflected God's glory... Jesus was God's glory in brilliant light poured out from heaven. And so really the the greater similarity here exists between not Jesus and Moses, but between Jesus and God, because the point is Jesus is God, shown in brilliant and glorious light. And actually Jesus isn't similar to God. That would be a major understatement. Uh, Jesus is the same as God. He is the same substance as God in power and glory. He is God. And we know this because he is shown in brilliant light. And we also know that in the Old Testament, whenever God revealed himself or displayed himself in physical phenomena, it was in the natural phenomena of light. God is light. You'll remember when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself in the burning bush. Uh, God led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years, and he manifested himself to lead them as a pillar 
a fire to light their way. The psalmist in chapter 44 says, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. The one who has come to lead us now is God himself. This is the person of glory. But you know, there's a major implication here. If Jesus is God, the creator God, and we're talking about that God, if Jesus is the God king with supreme rule and authority, that means that he's the shot caller. That means that he can dictate the the terms because he has claim over our lives. He can tell us what to do. And he can require of us a standard of law and rule. Now, how does that sit with you today, that someone has a claim over your life? This is unthinkable for our modern sensibilities, isn't it? Because the idea of a sovereign ruling our lives grossly violates our personal freedom of choice and preference. But, you know, I I, want to encourage us to think about it this way today. Having Jesus, the creator God, the God King, is a really positive thing. It's a really positive thing. There's a story I know about a young man who's driving down the road in this brand new car, and he's whizzing down the highway, and he sees an old man on a cane walking, but he passes by him anyway. And as soon as he does that, clunk, clunk in the engine, and the car is just coming to a stop, and so he has to pull over to the shoulder. And he pops the hood open and billow of smoke, something's terribly wrong, and he's trying to figure it out. Well, eventually, the old man on the cane walks uh, by the car, and he peers over the hood and says, can I help you with something, young man? And the young man's kind of looking over at the old man and saying, well, uh, I'm okay. I think there's something wrong with the car, but I should be able to uh, figure it out because he wants to be self-sufficient. But the old man lingers on a little bit longer, and and the older man says, well, I think this is exactly what's wrong with your car. And the young man very politely and respectfully says, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your help. But he's really skeptical. He really wants to just be self-sufficient. And the old man passes on. And the young man is spending hours on this car trying to figure out what the problem is, but to no prevail. And so uh, it's getting kind of late in the day, and he's exhausted, and he just kind of plops down uh, and rests on the tire of his car, wondering, what the heck am I going to do next? But then he remembers what the old man said. And he says, you know what, in a last-ditch effort, why don't I listen? And so he goes under the hood again, and he takes the advice of the old man, and lo and behold, the car is fixed. The engine revs up again, and it seems to even be working better than it did before. It's absolutely restored. And he can't, Im- and he can't imagine that this happened. He's so amazed. He gets into the car. He rushes to find that old man. He finds the old man pulls over, gets out of the car, shakes the old man's hand and says, I'm so thankful for you, but how did you know what the problem of the car was? Well, the old man with a smile on his face responds, well, my name is Henry Ford. I know what the problem was because I created that car. Well, likewise, for us, If there's anyone that we're going to entrust our lives to, shouldn't it be the person of glory? Not any person of glory, this person of glory, Jesus Christ, God himself. 
That's the person of glory. Now, what's, what's this preview of glory that Jesus is going to give to the disciples? And again, it's, it's to encourage them. So what is he going to offer them that's going to be real, that's going to be an actual encouragement to them in these spiritual peaks and in these spiritual valleys? What's going to make sense for them? Well, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus was transfigured, that there are these two figures with them, Moses and Elijah, who are these like huge titans of the historical faith, and both of them representing the, the law and the prophets respectively. And together, that was a common way of referring to the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus is there. And so it's this kind of culminating moment of all that the Old Testament had been talking about. And they're with Jesus. And he's transfigured. He's transfigured. And guess what the disciples are doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. Uh, but we're told when they awoke... We're in uh, verse 32 here. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And we just need to pause there for a second and just take that in. They were sleeping. When they fully awoke, they saw the glory of God. This is not a small thing. This is not a small moment. Because it's for the first time in all of human history since the fall that there are three men who are looking straight into and at the glory of God in all of its brilliant fullness, and they're not dropping dead. You know that a holy God and a sinful man just cannot be in direct presence with each other. You'd just be pulverized if you saw the glory of God. But these men who were sleeping, who should have been praying, by the way, with Jesus, they were sleeping, they wake up, and they see the glory of God. And for the first time, people are walking, not by faith, not trusting in something that's unseen, but they're walking by sight. They're walking by sight. But you know, at this point, I know what some of us are thinking. That's it. Uh, I wish I could walk by sight. I wish I could see God like the disciples did because that would pretty much answer all the problems that I have about Christianity. That would pretty much, if God showed up at my doorstep, that would pretty much be the ultimate proof that I would need to know that God exists, uh, to, to legitimize every Christian truth claim there is. I would have no more doubts, and that'd be the solution. But you know, that would be a mistake. It'd be a mistake to think that. Uh, w.H. Auden, that American poet, uh, said this about the transfiguration, and you'll find that in your bulletins. You can read along with me. Auden writes, Christ did not enchant man, men. He demanded that they believe in him, except on one occasion the transfiguration. For a brief while, Peter, James, and John were permitted to see him in glory. For that brief while, they had no need of faith. And I didn't print for us the rest of that because I didn't want to give it away. Um, but he continues on and says this, but when the vision vanished, the memory of it did not prevent them from all forsaking him when he was arrested or Peter from denying that he ever had known him. 
Outen rightly observes that even though the three disciples saw Jesus, they still abandoned him. They rejected him later. You'll remember when Jesus was arrested and tried for a crime that he didn't even commit. Uh, the, the disciples fled in fear and in shame, and Peter, worst of all, denies Jesus that he even knew him three times before the cock crowed, and the rest fled in fear and shame. So you see, just because we see Jesus doesn't mean we'll follow Jesus. A lot of people saw Jesus. A lot of people heard Jesus. A lot of people even physically touched Jesus, but not all accepted him as Savior and followed him. And it may be as simple as saying this. The disciples, they were really in need of a particular, a unique kind of blessing from Jesus. After all, these were the men who would start the Christian movement. And so they needed perhaps maybe a little bit more than we did to start the church, to lay down the foundation of the church, which was no easy feat. And so Jesus wanted to really bless them in a very powerful and physical kind of way by being transfigured before them, by allowing them to get a glimpse of his glory. And that was enough to propel them to start the Christian movement. But for us, as people who didn't see Jesus when he walked the earth, now have to walk by faith. And it's so that one day we could walk by sight. It's the reverse for us. Uh, and I know that some of us are still uncomfortable with this. Well, why? Well, why for the, this is a little bit unfair. It's a little bit unfair. And, and it would seem that maybe we're at a disadvantage because we have to walk by faith, and it's so much harder than walking by sight. But, you know, uh, try to see the positive here. Uh, this is not a bad thing. It's a good thing that we need to walk by faith. And actually, this is the only way that faith can properly be faith. Because God has designed this thing so that we have to have faith in what is unseen. Because otherwise, we would believe based on what God could give us. That's right. Think on this. If God revealed to all of us his plan for all of the universe, and he just kind of laid it out before us, Okay, like a drawing board. And he just went from slide to slide to slide, showing us his plan for the entire universe. And it just so happened that that plan was in your favor, that you saw in the drawing board of the, the, the plan for all of the universe, uh, blessings that would come to you. What would your faith be based on? Well, your faith would be based on what you could get from God and not for God himself. And that's why we need to walk by faith. This is why God is designed this way. Because God wants you. And he wants you to want him for him alone and not based on what he can give you. It's really the difference between valuing the gift more than the giver. If faith was based on sight, we would want the gift and not the giver. But that's not what God wants. He wants to be in relationship with us. But this is just a preview of the future glory to come. A sinful man who is going to behold the glory of God in his presence. But how does it get accomplished? And what's the plan to see this to completion? And here's where we see, as the final point, the plan of glory. The divine plan is foreshadowed when God speaks. It usually is that way. 
When God speaks, he usually reveals something really important about himself and what he's up to. And we hear a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You know, these words should ring a bell. They sound very similar to the language that we used at Jesus' baptism. When the heavens opened up, a voice came from heaven, the dove descending, and the voice said, this is my son with whom whom I'm well pleased. Well, why was the father so pleased? Well, it's because the son is faithful to the father. He's perfectly righteous and obedient and blameless and and pure as the driven snow. But this is the double-edged sword of what God is saying right now. Because the father knows the son is perfectly righteous and obedient and faithful and spotless, and that's why he'll make the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. You see, in the Old Testament, if you wanted your sins forgiven, you went to see a priest. And you didn't go empty-handed. You brought with you an animal sacrifice. And the priest would examine this animal that was offered for sacrifice. And the priest, based on the, the purity of the animal, he would examine the animal, make sure that it was blemish-free, that it was spotless, that it was just the perfect thing to offer to God. And based on the perfection of the sacrifice, your sins would be forgiven. Well, God is telling us that the son who he loves, the one he loved from all of eternity, is his chosen one. That is the chosen sacrifice, the one who is blameless and pure. And it was on the cross that Jesus is slaughtered. His blood is shed. It serves as the final payment for the forgiveness of our sins. This was the plan of glory, that the person of glory, in the preview of glory, would show us the plan of glory, and that plan would entail him shedding his glory and being sacrificed on a cross for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, for Jesus to become the sacrificial lamb of God, so that in Jesus' sacrifice we could stand in his righteousness and be reconciled to a holy God again. That's good news. That's good news. A couple of points of application for us as we close then. Uh, I want us to think of, upon the duality of light. Okay? Light can do two things, among other things. Uh, light can burn you, or light can warm you. And actually, that's not a bad way of su- summarizing the entire scripture. This is the message of the entire Bible, the, the gospel. That the light of God is too bright for you to withstand it, and so you will be burnt. That is unless you believe that it won't. That in Jesus Christ, who is the light of God, shown in brilliance and radiance, that in him and through him and in his work, that you won't be burnt, but that you'll be warmed. And really, it's as simple as that. Do you believe that? And if you do, you'll be warmed. You'll just be basking in the light of God. That's good news. But you know, uh, we want just that benefit again, right? We just want that gift, right, without the giver. But this requires us to reckon with another property of light, that it exposes darkness. We all have dark corners in our life that need to be exposed. And that's what Jesus is in the business of. Because he is the light, he is here to expose your darkness, 
And you don't have to be afraid because like we established, the light of God is not there to burn you. Right? Jesus was burned for you so that you won't have to be. You can be warmed in it. There's no shame in it anymore. And so if there is darkness in the corners of your world, in your heart, in your life, in your relationships, in the way that you think, let the light of Christ shine on you because it'll be gracious to you. The last point of application is this. Uh, Some of us are too distracted because we are too impressed with certain lights that will pose as the real lights. You'll find a quote in your bulletin by Alexander McLaren, and he's a British minister at the turn of the 20th century. And he wrote this about the transfiguration. Remember that vision on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, let it be ours, even in the glare of earthly joys and brightnesses. There are certain brightnesses out there that will pose as the real light that you need. It'll promise to warm you. It'll promise to satisfy you. It'll promise to to have you basking in its lights for your joy. But they're all false lights, and they're lesser lights, because we know the real light, who's Jesus Christ revealed in glory. And so our job in God's grace, of course, and in prayer is to able to distinguish the difference between the real light versus lesser lights. We've given ourselves to the basking, to what we thought was this great light, but all the while we're being burnt and we don't know it. And we're on our way to cancer. Terminal. But it's when we're able to distinguish between the difference that we'll be able to really bask in the real light of God. And so exilic today, uh, walk by faith because we know that one day we'll be walking by sight. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you that you have poured out from heaven your glorious light, who is the person of glory, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Warm us today in your light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.